I'm delighted to be here this this morning to worship the Lord with you. And I, I thought during that first song we sang, they're singing a theme from Psalm 46. And it was really a blessing to sing that song with you, David. My, um, in the last 20 years, I suppose, my concentration in... Um, in academics has been the Psalms. I know a little more about scripture than the Psalms, but uh, the Psalms have been a, a, a refuge for me personally. They have been a place where I could go and find consolation and strength and encouragement. And I've uh, just really lived on the Psalms and out of the Psalms. Sometimes someone will ask me, what is your favorite psalm? Well, I always uh, try to get around answering that question because I'm not sure I have a favorite. Sometimes I say, if you meet me on the street and you say, say a psalm, it's Psalm 121 that's going to come out first. Not that that's my favorite, but it's the one that is always in my mind. Psalm 23 is a very precious psalm to all of us. And we're so grateful that uh, David penned that psalm for our benefit. But more and more, Psalm 46 is just impressed upon my mind and my heart and my living. I'm not sure I could even at this point call it my favorite psalm, but it certainly is close, and one that I just really appreciate when I read it. And this morning, I'm going to try to share with you some ideas from Psalm 46 that I hope you will appreciate, I hope you will understand. Now, um, remember, I'm a teacher, and I... I taught in the college classroom for 40 years. So it seems only appropriate that I should ask something of you and put you on the spot, not give you a a quiz, but I am going to start out by doing something that uh, is going to require your participation. I'm not going to embarrass you, but I, I want you to listen very carefully to what I say. Now, the Psalms are full of word pictures. We know a lot about word pictures. We often use them. And we must understand that um, when we read the Psalms, we are reading pictures that the psalmist has in his mind, and he is trying to help us see. In fact, there, a few years ago, one of the psalm scholars that um, is very prominent in this country wrote a book that he titled, Seeing the Psalms. I thought that was a, an interesting title and a very appropriate title, because when we go to the psalms, we are hearing them, but we should also be 
seeing them. Now, to, to illustrate this, I'm going to give you a little exercise. And I want you to listen very carefully to what I say. And when I'm done, I'm going, to, I'm going to give you a word picture. I'm going to read a prayer that I've written. And when I'm finished, I'm going to ask you what event in history has my prayer reflected? That's the way the psalmists write. That's the way Psalm 96 is composed. And we're going to look at one of those instances this morning. But um, when I read this, this prayer, I want you to listen very carefully and think um, with me as I offer the, this word picture. Are you ready? Okay. Lord, have mercy on us and help us. Save us from those who would put their trust in a God who is not the Lord. When our enemies come upon us, let us not be afraid of their planes that fly in horizontal patterns. When the crushing moment of evil comes and disaster looms around us, shield our towers from those who take their own lives and the lives of others with them. When the smoking furnace of destruction threatens to undo us, and the crumbling towers of steel have become dust all around us, send them from Send, them, send help from those who risk their lives to save others and from those who put out our fires and rescue the, the perishing. Lord, the smoldering flames of hatred may overtake us, but when the ashes have cooled and the rescue has begun, let the cross appear before our eyes. Now, I want someone to tell me, what event in history am I building my prayer out of? I'm, I'm taking images from a, a certain event. What event am I drawing upon? Rhonda knows. <laughs> It's 9-11. It was a terrible event, and fixed in our minds are pictures of that event that we just can't forget. Well, I'm going to come back to this idea that uh, we read the Psalms, but we also see the Psalms. And the psalmists use word pictures to convey their message to us. Now, I want us to look then at Psalm 46 and make some observations about the beautiful and powerful psalm that this is. First, let's look for the theme of the psalm. I know that 
it's appropriate to ask the question, what is the major theme of any passage of scripture? Sometimes it's hard to determine because there will be multiple themes. But I think that Psalm 46 has a single theme that stands out to us. And the way we determine this is we look at the psalm and look at how the psalm is put together. Oftentimes we don't think about how the psalms are structured, but it's a very important uh, detail about the psalms. It has 11 verses. That's quite, quite obvious. It has two stanzas, which is not as obvious. The first stanza is God is refuge from natural disasters. This is verses 1 through 6. And then we have a refrain. The refrain is found in verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. That's the first stanza. The second stanza is composed of verses 8 through 10. God is, a refuge, God is refuge from political disasters. First natural disasters, now political disasters. And then we have a refrain. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Now, when we sing a song, I think the first song we sang this evening, this morning, was is, is a good example. There are certain terms that the writer of the song wants us to hear and wants to impress upon us. So he or she may repeat those, and that's what the psalmist does here. He gives us a refrain, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our refuge. Now when this this whole idea of God is with us is an idea that occurs in the Psalms. It occurs in Isaiah. It occurs in much of Scripture. In fact, Matthew begins his gospel with this message, quoting Isaiah 7.14. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Jesus. Or call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. A few years ago, uh, when I was teaching Old Testament theology, uh, I chose a book, that a textbook that uh, was written actually by uh, by uh, a missionary, Christopher Bart, and the title of the book was. God with us. Now, when, when we read the book, they did, it was probably given by some editor somewhere and uh, not the author himself. But uh, 
when we read the book, it didn't really carry that theme through as it should have. But nevertheless, it was a good theme. And it, it represents a, a, a very central e, uh, e theme of scripture. Of course, we all are familiar with uh, Martin Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And this is based on Psalm 46. And when you read Luther's hymn, when you sing it, it is so profound. He captured the power of God that Psalm 46 speaks about. And he captured the importance of God's presence with us, which the psalm speaks about. The Lord of hosts is with us. Martin Luther was, is, is really my favorite uh, reformer. Now, I love John Calvin. And John Calvin is my favorite, favorite theologian, but Martin Luther is my favorite character of the Reformation. He had, a, he had a tough life. And sometimes when the Reformation seemed to be failing and when things were going the wrong way and the opposition seemed relentless, he would say to his assistant, Melanchthon, he would say, Melanchthon, let's sing Psalm 46. Now, one of the messages that Luther found so powerful in this, this psalm was how strong God is and how present God is with us. Now, in relation to God's presence with us, I want, to I want us to see something else in this psalm. Maybe you've, maybe you've never done anything like, anything like this with a psalm, but I want to make this point and let you know that this is a valid way to look at many of the psalms. That is, when we, when you, uh, when we look at the Psalm 46 and we're looking for how the author develops the theme, the Lord of hosts is with us, we find that he, he does it in a very interesting way. Now, if, if, you were a, if you were or I were a poet and we were writing our own psalm, how would we develop this theme, the Lord of hosts is with us? He says it twice, 7 and 11. We could take the refrain and repeat it two or three more times, but we would run the risk of wearing out the refrain so that it would lose its power to the, the listener. So what our writer does, and this is, this is not one of the David Psalms, this is one of the uh, uh, Psalms in another collection. What the writer does, he frames the psalm by God's name. It's sort of like an envelope effect. God appears in verse 1, and God appears in verse 11. Verse 1, God is our refuge and our strength. 
verse 11. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So you see how he frames the psalm with the word God. This is a literary way of informing us that the psalmist's faith was anchored in God. He wants us to know that. He wants us to know that his eyes are on God. And notice in that regard that the name of God occurs in the psalm seven times. I don't know that there's any particular significance to the number seven here. There could be. But it occurs in the psalm seven times. One, four, five, twice there. Seven, ten, eleven. And the name Lord, the the name Lord is the covenant name of uh, our God. The name Lord occurs three times. Seven, eight, and eleven. And in addition to that, the name Most High This is the name that was Abraham knew God by. It occurs one time. So this means God's name appears 11 times in the psalm. That is is outstanding in 11 verses. God's name appears 11 times. Now, just imagine if you could step into this psalm and look around. What would you see? You would see God everywhere. He has told us the Lord of hosts is with us, and now he illustrates that in a literary sense by using God's name 11 times. It's quite an interesting way to deal with uh, this theme and, and develop this theme. Now, second, and here I want to draw on our little exercise, a word picture. This is verses 2 and 3. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Now, here comes the word picture. Though the mountains be moved... Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. So what's happening here? The mountains are moving into the waters, and you can imagine the weight and gravity of the mountains as they splash into those waters. It's sort of like a dropping on an atomic atomic or neutral uh, atomic bomb in, in the ocean and you see all of the swelling and the uh, waves rolling and ro- roaring now it's very common for the psalmists to take word pictures from other portions of scripture And they then incorporate them into their own poems. And that is precisely what our poet is doing. He's taking a word picture from another portion of scripture. If I were in a 
class, I would just stop and say, can you think of a passage where he might have picked up this word picture? But uh, I won't take that time unless somebody knows it right off. Um, but I, I, want to, I want you to see what, what he is doing. He goes to Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is often cited or alluded to in the Psalms. He goes to Genesis 1, and there Genesis tells us how God created the world and the dry land that was submerged between the water when God created the world. It's done in phases, and early on, the, the whole earth is covered with water. But where is, the, where is the land? The land is submerged between, uh, under the water. So God says, let the water under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. So you see the picture here? When God makes the command, the waters move to one place or many places, and the dry land which is submerged under the waters appears. The waters are gathered into one place and the land submerged under the waters appears and forms the earth. The land was composed, of course, of plains and deserts and mountains. And now the psalmist looks at his world and he perceives that his world is going in the reverse direction. Because the, the mountains now are slipping in to the waters and disappearing. Now the psalmist describes the creation process in reverse. The mountains slip back into the waters and disappear beneath the waters as the sea roars and foams. This is the word picture he's drawing from Genesis 1. The psalm is reversing the picture of creation. Do you see that? It sends a message to us. Even when the world is moving in, the, in reverse order, going in the opposite direction, God is still in control. How would the psalmist say it? God is with us. The Lord of hosts is with us. When, the, when it seems our world is dissolving, sometimes it does seem to me, and I, I know they are, Rhonda and I watch a lot of news because we want to be informed on what's going on in our world, in our country. And there are those days when I feel like the, this country and this world are moving in the wrong direction. In fact, the 
the larger percentage of our country thinks we're moving in the wrong direction. And what our psalmist is saying is when the world seems moving in the wrong direction, in the opposite direction, the Lord of hosts is still with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Now, that's our word picture. And I think that it's a very powerful word picture. And I think that we really need this message today. You have to, you have to listen to the word picture. You have to see the word picture to understand what the psalmist is saying, what the psalmist's message is. Now, third, I want us to see how the psalmist draws the word picture in the second stanza of the psalm. Like his message that the world may seem to move in reverse order, and when it does, we know that the Lord is still with us. Now the psalmist closes the psalm with a word of instruction. And it's really a shocking word. It's a word that takes us by surprise, in fact. Here it is. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The surprise really comes in the imperative. Be still. Now, normally, we take this to mean that be still is to be quiet and contemplative in our meditations before the Lord. And that certainly is a psalmic idea. We find it in Psalm 4.4, for example, in other places. But it's not what the Hebrew verb means. Be still is... If, if, we are, if we take it as being quiet and contemplative, that's not the word, what the verb means. In fact, if I were in a, in a classroom setting, I probably would go more into this. I, I think we just have misunderstood the um, English translation. The King James is really Elizabethan English. And in... The, the, the word, and the, that's the way King James translates this verb. It translates it to, to uh, be still. But uh, in Elizabethan English, this word be still means to stop, desist. And the Hebrew word here is, has precisely that meaning. It's not the word to be still. That would be another verb. But it has precisely that meaning to stop, cease and desist, cease and desist trying to do God's work for him. Stop trying to fix the problems that are overwhelming us and let God fix them. 
it doesn't mean that we have no responsibility, that we should just disengage altogether. But it, it means that we are to recognize that we are the servant and we are not God. So we can't fix the problems. We can't do what only God can do. We are his assistants. Our God is the only one who can really fix the problems of this sinful world. This week I read um, one of the local pastors wrote his congregation and in the uh, in the, the, the little blurb he made a statement which I thought was just so powerful. He said we're going to do the possible and God is going to do the impossible. That's what our psalmist is saying. Cease and desist trying to do God's work, a work that only God can do. Remember that we are servants and we're not God. That's why Jesus came into this fallen world. We, we humans couldn't do it. And the psalm is sealed with this powerful theme we, are, we have already observed. It comes in the end of the first stanza and the end of the psalm in verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. If God is here, if God is with us, then we can leave the job to him to do. We'll, we'll commit ourselves in, in servanthood, but we will depend on God to win the victory. We don't need a refuge when there's no battle. We don't need someone to save us from the storm when there's no storm raging. We need a refuge when life is easy and comfortable. We don't need a refuge when life is easy and comfortable and peaceful. Just remember the refrain. Refrain, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. How much have you ever learned about God? when life was on easy street, when everything was going along smoothly, I think most of us would say, not much. Rather, it was when the storm was raging, when the building was on fire, when our hearts were broken to pieces, that the lessons began forming in our minds and we began having our aha moments it was in those moments where we could say, come and see what the Lord has done. Then we see, begin to see what God has done, what God can do, how much God does care for us, how much God does love us. It's really the nature of life that our best learning takes place in the crucible of real life experiences.
And it's the nature of God to appear in the crucible of our suffering to tell us that the Lord is with us. When we don't feel alone, we don't go out and look for a friend to keep us company. If we're not hungry, God can't feed us. If we're not thirsty, God won't give us water to drink. The verse really means stop the fight and struggle. The battle is the Lord's. Back to our opening song. Stop fighting the Lord's battles for him. Let God fight them for himself on our behalf. Stop trying to be God and let God be God. You see, it's a summons. Be still and know that I am God. It's a summons to surrender. Surrender not to our enemies, but to surrender to God and let God fight the battle. The battle is the Lord's. Some of us have tried too long to fight our own battles. We have taken sword in hand, sharpened our arrows, strung our bows, and fought our battles in hand-to-hand combat. But this verse admonishes us to stop the struggle and let God do it. When some of us need to do in what some of us need to do in our personal struggles is to be still and let God make all the right moves. That doesn't mean that we have to disengage ourselves and pretend that nothing is wrong. But it means that we have to realize the battle is the Lord's. And he must win the victory. We can't. We need to tell the Lord, I can't win this one. I've tried, and the opposition is too strong for me. So I'm laying down my weapons, and I'll let you fight this one. You have to lead the charge. I've tried that too. It hasn't worked. So I'm just going to be still and know that you're God. There's a song we used to sing in our our early days that I I think really says this so beautifully. Gutting the rivers you think are uncrossable. Gutting the mountains you cannot tunnel through. God specializes in things thought impossible and he'll do for you what no other power could do. Be still and know that I'm God. We will do the possible and God will do the impossible. May his name be blessed.